Hey there, and welcome to the Soil and Roots podcast, digging beneath the surface to uncover the hidden ideas that form us and the church and our culture. I'm Brian Fisher, and this is episode 31. Houston, we have three problems. Today, we're releasing a new visual aid on the Soil and Roots website called The Three Primary Problems. You can find this chart on the resources tab at www.soilandroots.org. This episode is another bonus episode. In the Soil and Roots community, a bonus episode just means I'm stepping out of the normal flow of our journey to explore something because I think it's relevant and will add to your overall experience. I had originally intended to introduce the three primary problems chart and start our exploration of habits in this episode, but the episode got too long and wonky, so I broke it up into two. We will start exploring habits as our second key element of formation in the next episode. So I'm going to walk you through a few things on this chart today, so if you can, pull it up on your device or print it out before you continue listening. So let's set the stage a bit. Last season, I made the claim that Western culture is and has been in a state of decay and decline primarily due to three problems. The Forgotten Kingdom, the Discipleship Dilemma, and the Formation Gap. I'm going to explain my logic about why I think these are the three most pressing problems in society, and it involves how and why this podcast even got started. I've been following Jesus since I was six years old, and I've been in church and studying the Bible and involved in Christian service my entire life. But as I approached middle age, I began asking some difficult questions about my own walk with Jesus. Some of these questions came as a result of reading a theologian and philosopher I've quoted here before, Dallas Willard. He claimed that most of us are unconsciously governed by hidden ideas and images, that our hearts are rooted in assumptions and concepts that most of us don't realize or explore. I didn't particularly like the thought that I might be governed by things of which I wasn't conscious, but as I thought about it, I realized that it's true, at least in my heart. I function based on assumptions that have developed over the years, and some of those align with my Christian beliefs, but some of them don't. That realization was disconcerting, to say the least. Willard defined discipleship as progressively replacing dark ideas with life-giving good ideas. I found that definition rather compelling. He also said that a disciple is simply someone who orders his or her life around apprenticing with Jesus for the purpose of becoming more like him. I don't know why that hit me the way it did. In some sense, he's just restating the concept of sanctification in plain English, But for whatever reason, I had never really thought of sanctification in such an earthy, normal way. Discipleship is the journey we take to become like someone else. We may have seen Michael Jordan play basketball and decided we wanted to be like Mike. Maybe as a kid, we idolized a parent or a sibling, a relative, and we determined we wanted to grow up to become like that person. When I was in my 20s, I had the unique opportunity to sit down and have lunch with John Bogle, the founder of an enormous investment company called Vanguard. He was an investment icon in his day. And I left that conversation deeply admiring some of his character traits, and I wanted to become more like him in those areas. But for whatever reason, I had never really linked discipleship with the rather normal human desire to become like someone else. I think I was embracing the unconscious idea that discipleship was more about accumulating information rather than heart formation. It took me quite a while to embrace Willard's perspective, but then I discovered he wasn't alone. Thinkers and theologians and philosophers have been exploring and explaining these things for years. Once I did embrace the concept of these hidden ideas, and once I began to look at discipleship as the intentional journey of becoming like Jesus, 
Well, that raised two really important questions for me. Did I really know Jesus? And did I really know myself? To answer the first question, did I really know Jesus, I figured it made sense to spend far more time reading about him. The whole Bible is about Jesus, but the stories of his earthly life are found in the Gospels, so I just threw myself into those books. I read them over and over and over again, placing myself into the stories. I visualized myself sitting in AD 30 or so, following him around and watching him as he interacted with people. And I discovered that, although I had been following him for several decades, I didn't really know him all that well. well that was a bummer. And I didn't really understand his kingdom all that well. I've wrestled with the idea of the kingdom of God for probably 20 years, but like most of us, I hadn't heard all that much about it, apart from random, fairly undefined references in sermons or in books. So I began digging into the kingdom, and a whole new world opened up, and it became clear that the lack of a kingdom orientation in the church over the past few hundred years has had a debilitating, corroding, destructive impact on the church and our culture. The kingdom is a really, really big deal. I don't think we can overstate the impact of the problem of the forgotten kingdom. Well, so then I turned my attention to the second question, how well do I know myself? I don't think anyone can become like someone else without knowing themselves. If I wanted to be like Mike, I would certainly need to take a look at my current basketball skills, which are nil, my work ethic, my willingness to practice, and whether I was surrounded by or had access to coaches who could guide me and players who were better than me. Was I part of a community that could help me be like Mike? If I wanted to become like the investment guru John Bogle, I should probably look at my own investment philosophy to see where I agreed with him and where I didn't. I should look at my investment practices to see if what I was doing lined up with what he was doing. I should learn Bogle's habits and his perspectives and go do the things he did. I should determine if I was surrounding myself with people who could help me grow to be more like John Bogle. If my purpose is for my inner self, my heart, my spirit, to become more like Jesus, and we're both human, then it made sense for me to begin to explore anthropology, the study of what it means to be human. How does one human being become formed more like another human being, in this case, one who is also God? That led me to study human beings' most formative experiences. What types of situations or experiences or cultures most form us into who we in fact become? Pretty much everyone agrees that early childhood is the most formative time in a human being's life. Then we have things like marriage and college and the military, maybe a summer camp or time studying abroad, becoming a parent, extended time spent with a group of close friends. These are all examples of highly formative experiences. And as I continued to investigate intentional formative environments, I became curious as to whether these modern examples bore any resemblance to the types of communities created in the early church. Lo and behold, there are five very common characteristics deeply shared between all of these intentional experiences and powerfully exemplified in New Testament communities. Well, that led to my last logical question. If human beings require certain environments in order to be formed like someone else, do you and I have access to these environments as it relates to becoming like Jesus? Does my modern experience and expectation with discipleship and church align with these five elements common to all highly formative experiences? Was I a part of a community specifically intended 
to help me become like someone else? And the answer is no, at least in my life. I live in a gap. I'm missing very important, necessary pieces of formation to help me become like someone else. And so I started working on ideas for the podcast in late 2021 as a means of working this stuff out. I said early on that I was inviting you to take the journey with me to explore what discipleship really is and why it's usually self-directed today and how we might work together, come together, to fix it if it's broken. I'm obviously still on the journey and you've obviously decided to come along and I'm glad you're here. But having now been on the journey for a while, I do think the three primary problems does properly codify the general framework for the podcast. And that's why I'm breaking in here mid-season. I want us to have the most context possible as we move along. Now, the three primary problems visual aid, the chart, is not the most visually appealing tool we've ever produced. It's basically a spreadsheet, but we have added some color. The purpose is to contrast what I think most of us experience or assume in modern Western Christianity and compare it to the biblical vision of the kingdom, discipleship, and community. I'm not going to read every word on the chart. I'm just going to hit some highlights. So let's explore the first primary problem on the chart, the forgotten kingdom. Now, I've suggested that over the past few hundred years, the majestic, cosmic gospel of the kingdom has become eroded and reduced to the point that the role and person of the king of that kingdom is simply a personal savior who has little relevance after we've been saved. So when someone says the gospel today, what they tend to mean is the gospel of salvation. And it's probably more accurate to say they mean justification. Salvation as a biblical term has broader implications than praying a prayer or accepting Jesus. In his rather heady but helpful book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, John Murray writes, quote, When we think of the application of redemption, we must not think of it as one simple and indivisible act. It comprises a series of acts and processes, end quote. Paul alludes to this in Philippians when he writes, quote, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, end quote. We are saved, and yet we are working out our salvation. Sometimes hard for us to get our heads around salvation as a series of steps because we are in fact saved or justified at the moment we accept Jesus' invitation to follow him and we're eternally secured in that moment. But the Bible's teachings on salvation do go deeper and wider than just one moment. This relates to the whole conversion versus discipleship topic that we've considered several times already. So while the modern church tends to assume the gospel of salvation and a potentially limited view of that, the broader concept of the gospel in the Bible is the gospel of the kingdom. And I've listed several examples of the downstream impacts of both those on the chart. Theologians call the gospel of salvation the reductionist gospel. It's the gospel, of course, but it's reduced. It's not the complete picture of the good news. Chuck Colson may be a name familiar to some of you. He was a high-ranking government official in the Nixon administration, and then he went to prison for his involvement in Watergate. Jesus saved him, and Colson spent the rest of his life as a tour de force for the kingdom, starting Prison Fellowship and another organization now called the Colson Center, which trains people all over the world on Christian worldview. Their take on this is what they refer to as a two-stage gospel and a four-stage gospel. The Bible is a grand narrative, a story, and it's in four parts, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. They maintain that modern Christianity tends to assume a two-stage gospel, fallen redemption, man sinned, 
Jesus saved us on the cross. The Colson Center teaches we're missing two critical elements of the gospel, the bookends of creation and restoration. The biblical journey is from garden to garden, from Eden to Eden, and the watershed events that split time in two and reverse the curse are the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, not only his life and death. If we cut out creation and restoration from the narrative of the gospel, we're missing vital parts of the story that are necessary for discipleship. So in some sense, it's not just what we've been saved from, but what we're saved into. This reduction results in things like making converts, but not disciples. Jesus has become personal and private versus being not only the king of our hearts, but of the entire cosmos. We tend to view the point of evangelism as a means of securing a transaction versus inviting someone to follow Jesus so that they become a brand new person with a brand new family and brand new relationships and an entirely new reality called the kingdom of God of which they now play a pivotal part. There are other downstream negative effects of the forgotten kingdom. We tend to consciously or unconsciously embrace the idea that the body is bad. Some time ago, I heard an evangelical leader claim that life is purely spiritual and the body is wasting away. We can't trust or pay attention to our bodies because they're sinful and we're going to die anyway. It's the spirit that remains, so ignore the body. That's nonsense. We are embodied spirits. We are unified beings. The body was created good. And the only reason it wastes away and dies is because of sin, not because of God's original design. This is why understanding creation is so essential to the gospel. Your body is a gift from God. Also, we weren't designed to be separated and disintegrated. All of us in Christ will one day have glorified, eternal, physical bodies. You started out as an embodied spirit, and you will spend eternity as, guess what? An embodied spirit. This downstream negative impact is actually more Gnosticism and not biblical Christianity. Another downstream effect of the Forgotten Kingdom is Christian fatalism. I touched on this in episode 4 and we're going to explore it more in season 4 when we look at the two kingdoms. Christian fatalism is the idea that the world is going to hell, so our primary mission is to save as many souls as possible before it all falls apart. It seems to me that this is a prevailing conscious or unconscious idea in the minds of many Western Christians today. Well, ideas have consequences. If we assume the world is falling apart, though the church may continue to grow, we may want to consider the downstream implications of that view. Back in episode 4, I touched on one of these implications. Christian fatalism places a person at odds with the second part of the great commandment, to love our neighbor, to seek their goodness, to seek the goodness of our cities. Here's another downstream consequence. Theologically speaking, there are two primary commissions in the Bible. We know the Great Commission in Matthew 28 to make disciples. The lesser-known commission, at least today, is found in Genesis 1.28. It's called the Cultural Commission, or the Cultural Mandate. God created the world and then handed over the responsibility for filling it and subduing it to mankind. Humans are to fill the earth and refine it, form it, mold it, make it to the glory of its creator. This is mankind's commission. We've talked about this lightly in terms of our four relationships, but because we largely assume a two-stage gospel today, the cultural commission gets largely cut out of Christian ideas today because it has more to do with creation. Now, a Christian fatalist either has to conclude that the cultural commission has expired or that it's ultimately futile. 
that although God commanded us to form the earth and culture for the good of mankind and to his glory, to attempt to do that must ultimately fail. Now, some argue that's because the cultural commission was given prior to the entrance of sin in Genesis 3, so it has expired. That's a problem because God restates and expands the cultural commission in Genesis 9 after the flood with Noah, obviously well after sin infected the world. Well, if it hasn't expired, then it must be futile. Our attempts to rule and subdue the earth and culture for the good of mankind must fail. Well, if the cultural commission is futile, why wouldn't the Great Commission be futile? I have never heard a church leader claim that the Great Commission will ultimately fail. We know not everyone will come to Christ, but we certainly hope that everyone will hear about him and his kingdom. Christians seem pretty jazzed about it. Or to reach the nations, the ends of the earth, with the gospel, and most Christians I talk to seem to think that's happening and that it will happen. I'm not sure there's a whole lot of clarity on what we mean by gospel, but there's a general optimism about it. So one of God's commissions is going to be fulfilled and the other is going to fail? I think the underlying reason why a fatalist believes the cultural commission will fail has something to do with recognizing man's sin and our need for Jesus. Like ancient Israel, we just can't get our act together and we're going to prove that time and again as we watch the world fall apart. Well, that offers no explanation of why the Great Commission should work out any better. Sin is sin. If we're so sinful we can't get our cultural act together, why would it be any different with disciple-making? Why are we even splitting these things up? What if the Great Commission assumes and embodies the Cultural Commission, and that maybe our accepted definition of discipleship is just a little too small? But let's run with it. The Church Universal will fulfill and complete the Great Commission, but that same Church Universal will fail to fulfill the Cultural Commission. This, despite the fact that we've been delivered from the power of sin, this side of the cross, God himself lives inside our hearts, this side of the cross, and Jesus is now king of every atomic particle in the cosmos, this side of his resurrection and ascension. As I alluded to in episode 4, a Christian fatalist has to take the Old Testament reality and impose it on our New Testament reality in order to make that work. That just begs the question, what is the point of the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension? What really changed, or perhaps didn't change, in that month and a half back in the first century. We've somehow become comfortable assuming that we, as redeemed sinners with the Holy Spirit in our hearts, will be successful at fulfilling the Great Commission, yet those same redeemed sinners with the Holy Spirit in our hearts will ultimately fail at God's first commission. Maybe they're both really the same commission. And maybe genuine discipleship embodies both. The second primary problem on your chart is the discipleship dilemma. We've covered most of those contrasting bullet points on the chart in other episodes, so I'll just touch on one of them. When I teach Soil and Roots or speak with someone about it in the context of our four relationships, everybody is comfortable talking about our relationship with God. Most people are comfortable talking about discipleship through the lens of our relationship with other people. Now, a lot of people haven't been taught about our role as ruler of creation, so that one tends to be new, but the one relationship that makes some people really nervous is this relationship with ourselves. Back to our description of discipleship, it involves getting to know Jesus better and getting to know ourselves, and that involves dealing authentically with our own stories. Now, some folks have two hesitations when embracing the fact that discipleship must include getting to know ourselves and our stories. The first 
is that it seems unchristian, maybe even selfish, to focus on ourselves and our history, our story. The second is we may doubt we can ever really grow to become like Jesus because of our sin. So let's chat through those two concerns. Is it selfish, is it unchristian, to focus on getting to know our own hearts? Is heart view a futile practice? Is going back into our stories a waste of time? If we do struggle with this, it tends to be because our hearts have been taught that the answer to all of our ills is to pray more, read more of the Bible, and do more Christian things, serve more people, right? The way to overcome our stories is to get our minds off ourselves. We die to self. We pick up our cross. We're Christians. We suck it up. So is it selfish and unchristian to explore how God made you and how he's weaving your story into his if your desire is to become more like him? There's a world of difference between self-focused if our desire is to build ourselves up versus exploring our stories because we desire to love Jesus and others more. The Bible routinely advocates for understanding ourselves and our stories as a means of growing in Christ. If you look at the Old Testament, God is constantly calling Israel to remember, 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 to go back, to remember their flaws and to remember God's faithfulness. I've mentioned three of several New Testament examples of Jesus inviting someone to deal authentically with their story in order to be freed from it, to be healed from it, and to move forward with him, the rich young ruler, Jesus' relationship with Peter and the woman at the well. Two of them allowed Jesus to take them back into their stories for healing, and one did not. He just left Jesus and continued coping. One of the most powerful stories in the Bible for me is the woman at the well. I don't know your opinion of the show The Chosen, but I think the nine-minute segment where they portray Jesus' conversation with this woman is one of the most powerful and moving things I've ever seen on video. If you haven't seen it, just search for Chosen Woman at the Well and you'll find it. I've linked to it in the blog post as well. The Chosen is not a word-for-word -word storytelling of Jesus and the disciples. It's a work of fiction, and it incorporates scripture into the story, and that's why the show is controversial to some people. So if you watch the clip, you're going to recognize the specific Bible verses from the story, but there is extra dialogue. Regardless, I think they did a marvelous job of showing the heart and the purpose of that encounter. As you watch Jesus and the woman converse, you're going to see that Jesus is leading her into deeper and deeper levels of her own heart as they progress. She remains guarded, skeptical, even hostile, until Jesus begins digging into her story. He asks her a question he already knows the answer to, and he uses that to remind her of her past. She's been married five times, and she's sleeping with a guy now who isn't her husband. She's a sharp lady, and she determines Jesus is a prophet, but Jesus doesn't stop there. In the video, he presses her. He starts naming the men she's been with and pieces of her story. It's painful for her, and she asks him, why are you doing this? But he uses her story to reveal her pain to prove that he is the only answer to her spiritual thirst. She has been trying to numb her pain and find her identity in men, but Jesus gently shows her that he is the only person who can heal her and make her whole. And he does it by dealing gently and authentically with her story. Now in the video, which is marvelously acted, you see the woman's face change as she realizes what's going on and who Jesus really is. She realizes that the Messiah has come to her, knows who she is and what she's done, and is still inviting her to embrace the God she thought was far off, inaccessible, and unloving. 
I've always found her final response in the story beautiful and a bit mystifying. Come see a man who has told me all the things I have done. What freedom in that statement. Come see this man who knows the harm that's been done to me and the harm I've caused others and still found me, still embraced me, still invited me. In the video, she actually runs and skips down the dirt path towards town, overcome with joy that the Messiah purposefully came and embraced her, a half-breed outcast whore, and invited her into his family. So is it selfish to explore our stories with Jesus? To spend time with him and trusted friends to name things that haven't been named? Bring truth to lies? To authentically acknowledge harm done to us and harm we've caused others? Digging into our stories is one of the most selfless, loving things we might do. Our second concern regarding our relationship with ourselves is believing that we can actually be changed after our salvation. Can we truly become more like Jesus when we at the same time acknowledge our struggle with sin? Can we really expect that we can grow to sin less and love more? Can we begin to desire what Jesus desires and love how he loves? Now, typically, we're going to go to Jeremiah 17, 9 and Romans 7 to prove this point. Jeremiah tells us the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And Romans 7 is the passage where Paul bemoans the conflict between his sin nature and the spiritual nature. He asks, as we all do, why does he do what he shouldn't do and not do what he should? If you grew up in a church or family that beat the sin out of you, you may find yourself wondering if you can become more like Jesus. It's not that you take your sin lightly as many people do, it's the opposite. It's here we need to pause and again note that creating doctrine out of isolated passages is a dangerous thing to do. A few verses later in Jeremiah, he writes, Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me and I will be saved. Romans 7 is followed by Romans 8, where Paul discusses freedom from bondage and victory in Christ. I find Paul to be painfully but refreshingly honest. He does struggle with sin. We struggle with sin. But does that mean we shouldn't hope and expect to grow to become more like Jesus? I don't think anyone could reasonably argue that Paul hadn't grown. He was a murderer of Christians and then became arguably the second most impactful human being on the planet for the kingdom. He learned the secret of being content. He learned to rejoice in his sufferings. He had a clean conscience because of the care and love he extended to his churches. Paul grew in Christ. If you read Peter's epistles, it's hard to even recognize the brash foot-and-mouth disciple from the Gospels. He closes his second epistle with, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. John 15 indicates that as we grow in Christ, we will bear much fruit. As we become more like Jesus, we learn to do the things Jesus did. In Colossians 3, Paul encourages us to put on the characteristics of Christ. I mean, taken as a whole, Scripture clearly points us to the reality that we can and should expect to grow to become more like Jesus, while we still recognize our sin nature. We can and should expect that as disciples, we will grow to hate and detest our sin, to sin less, and to grow to love Jesus and others and ourselves and his creation more. If we don't have hope in that, what's the point of being a disciple? The last section on the formation gap you can check out at your own convenience. I won't take time today to review it because it's the topic of the entire season. Hey look, there is wonderful news regarding these three primary problems. They are all reversible. We can be sure of that because both the New Testament and frankly church history prove it. If we recapture the gospel of the kingdom, and if we remember what it means to be a genuine disciple, 
And if we recreate communities where our spiritual formation is our primary purpose, we should expect the kingdom to increase and expand. And perhaps we get that revival we're always praying for. I don't think it's going to be easy. In fact, the kingdom of God often grows more through pain and loss than it does through events and hoopla. No, it's not going to be easy, but it will be very, very good. So I hope you find our new visual aid helpful. It has been for me. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, give it a positive review on your favorite platform. And for more information, check us out at soilandroots.org. If you'd like to reach me, email me at fish at soilandroots.org. And we're on Facebook at Soil and Roots Podcast. We'll see you next time.